0: Hi, welcome, not only back to The Film File, but back to cinema. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Starts now. Hey, and we are back for another Film File podcast. I am, I always have been, Lee Ford, and he is...
1: Still here. Uh, Andy Beacon.
0: (laughs) And welcome. We are smiling because we have been back into the sacred space known only as cinema. Yes, we have entered the hallowed ground of the projectionist. We have sat in the comfy seats and stared longingly at the big screen. And it feels great. And also the sun's out, which makes it even better. Andy, how are you?
1: i being mean, been back to work this weekend because we finally opened with our almost completely done refit. There's still odds and ends to do, but it's been a busy weekend. I have been stretched thin. I was absolutely exhausted, but still found time to go and see a film with yourself, Aye. which was marvellous. It was. Um, it, it's just been great this weekend seeing returning old faces and some new customers uh, who've never been to us before all coming in in quite substantial numbers we've seriously underestimated how busy we would be. And for that, I'm glad. Yes, we've not had enough staff and it's been stretched thin because of it, but we've all stepped up to it and we've all loved the fact that we're back in business and people want us to be back in business. We've had sold out shows on pretty much everything over the weekend. It's just marvellous. Because when we last reopened last year for that short period, even though there was tenant coming out, it didn't feel busy.
0: No, and having attended... Uh, a screening of Tenant with you, it always felt people were still dubious. Um, it was their first foray back. Uh, there were there were tentative steps, and we've we've talked about it. And there's no point going over what we thought of Tenant at the time, not being the right film to open cinemas with. But people did come back. But now it seems, even though the the news is not looking as as. Um, the, the virus is going in the direction that we want it to with the possibilities of a third wave. But uh, people are wanting to be back into that shared space. And I think uh, cinemas are clearly, and, and you said this a, a, a thousand times, are clearly a safe space because of, of all the work that you guys are doing to make it safe for patrons and, and be able to come in, enjoy a film and not worry about everything else around it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, what one of our regular customers when he came in on Saturday for the first time after all these months, he was almost close to tears telling us how happy he is that we're open and he's getting to see films. Genuinely, he, you could see the emotion on the top half of his face because mask was on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's seeing that and it's, it's feeling that vibe again. And it feels, it feels like we've gotten through things and yes, that, you know, the rates are creeping up again. However, that's just the infection rates, not the hospital admissions rate. And hopefully now that the rollout of the um, vaccine has been progressing to even the younger ages now, we're not going to see the hospital rates rise. And so we won't be forced into another lockdown. I know that elsewhere in the world, there's other situations going on. There's mutant strains of the virus. And also in Australia, there's one of the towns went on to full lockdown because someone took a test. It was fine. Went travelling to another time, took another test two days later, had it. So the original town had to lock down for a week. But they're just doing it on a town-by-town basis over there because Australia nailed it on day one. So it's we're coming out the other side, not internationally, but it feels that we are here. Uh, let's just hope that this half-term week with the beautiful weather, making people flock to the beaches, doesn't work against us.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean... We are a cinema community. We have all been waiting desperately to get back into being part of that community. And in a small way, I believe we've kept that community alive by presenting the film file. And in this week's show, we are going to be presenting to you our first proper cinema review in, ooh, since last year. We'll be talking about A Quiet Place 2. Andy will be donning his fashionable finery to talk about Cruella. Of course, we'll have our neat things, we'll have reviews, news and doing a deep dive into Alien. But before that, Andy, as you know, spends a lot of the week in cinemas, but in the downtime, he's there trawling through the myriad of news stories to bring you the sequence we only know as the news.
1: I, I genuinely do live, eat, breathe and drink um, film, don't I? <laughs> you do, don't <no. laughs> I? You know, eventually, Andy, is going to
0: get to the stage, you're going to have a big Modoc chair and everything <laughs> will be just plugged straight into you and, uh, and you'll be getting all your film news that way.
1: It'll beat having to inject, which I'm doing at the moment. But anyway... <laughs> Let's start off looking at some of the figures on both streaming and cinema over this past weekend. So Army of the Dead, uh, which we both quite enjoyed. We we both admit there's some failings, but it was enjoyable. It's set to make the top 10 most watched Netflix films to date, uh, looking likely to match Midnight Sky's 72 million views for its first four weeks of release. That's not bad. This initially came to my attention due to some fans who were claiming online that it was the most watched Netflix film of all time. And after some digging that only took me literally half a minute of a Google search <laughs> to bring up the actual figures, uh, it turns out that it still has a long way to go, as Extraction is currently the top fig, top film from Netflix with 99 million views in the first four weeks, and Bird Box on second place with 89 million. And even films such as Enola Home, Six Underground and Project Power are ahead of Army of the Dead. So no, it isn't the biggest release, but it's a substantial release, and... For that, I'm glad because it means that Netflix are going to be very confident on any spin-offs, prequels, etc.
0: Well, it does mean that they're confident about, about the Army of the Dead franchise. And, and that's what Netflix seem to be doing at the moment, is building these internal franchises where they have their own IP. Extraction, Enola Holmes, Army of the Dead, for instance, Bird Box, because there's a, in novel form, there's a sequel. So one assumes there's going to be a sequel to the movie anytime now. Uh, and they are creating their own franchises, which is which is the way, you know, after they lost Marvel and after they were looking for a good comic franchise, which they found with Umbrella Academy, they now have their own, their own IP that they own, they've created, and they can do whatever they want with.
1: In other numbers, this time cinema related, Quiet Place 2, which we review later on, opened very strongly in the US this weekend. It was projected to open to $40 million for the weekend. But by the Saturday, it was clear that it was going to be closer to 60 million by the end of the weekend. The final figures are still rolling in and being compiled. So we don't know for definite, but it was tracking well for the 60 million. Uh, The first film made 50 million on its opening weekend. And you have to consider that the current figures is based on theatres operating at 50 percent capacity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's all pointing in the right direction that people want to go back to the cinema as we as we've just spoken about is to come in and be part of that communal viewing experience. That's what it's about.
1: Uh, Cruella, which again we'll be reviewing later, opened less strong with a projected twenty five million. But the film was also releasing on streaming premium at the same time, which may have undercut the release. However, I think it's more likely that the marketing didn't quite work for the film, because I remember not being enamored much with the trailer and being left cold as to who the film was aimed at from it. And I think that's why it's going to find the problem getting the traction with.
0: Okay. in other news.
1: So let's talk Sony, Uh, Sony CEO Yoshida Kenichiro has confirmed that there's no plans for Sony to either start their own streaming service nor sell off their entertainment division. In this time, when mergers and buyouts are happening left, right and centre, we started with Disney and Fox. We've had Warners and Discovery, which we reported on a few weeks ago. And as we speculated, which was confirmed, Amazon and MGM. Sony have played smart, which we've mentioned before, and set up exclusive deals for limited times on major services instead. A strong financial year for Sony, coupled with the deals that they set up, have put to rest concerns that they were falling behind in the streaming race. With them not having to spend the billions of outlay that other studios have paid to set up their own streaming services, they can instead use the license fee money that comes in to reinvest into product, which includes ways to use their games and music brands within the film development. So expect more announcements of PlayStation games being adapted to streaming media or big screen releases expect more opportunities for uh, biographies into Sony owned brands of music expect a lot more interaction Yoshida Kenichiro has said that they he he wants to consider all the entertainment divisions as one whole thing of IP yeah
0: again it's something we've spoken about we've talked about the proliferation of streaming services if each cinema if each distribution and production entity created their own streaming service then we're going to be paying out an awful lot of money. Sony are doing the right thing and, and walking that correct path of, of looking what's out there and jumping on that instead of creating something new. And and backtracking a little bit because you did mention MGM. So we now know that, that buyout by Amazon is official. It's gone through.
1: Yep, it's definitely gone through. And that means that Amazon have a wealth of a back catalogue to be coming to their service once everything's signed and dotted and dashed which is expected the back end of next year once everything's fully signed off It's uh, sticking with sony and as part of their spider-verse range of films and i'm calling it the spider-verse because i'm aware that we're on the radio now and i'm not going to refer to it by that s-p-u-m-c anymore <laughs>
0: yeah good idea let's move
1: on <laughs> We now have Craven the Hunter is on the way with Aaron Taylor Johnson, who some will remember from Kickass, and most of us re- remember from going. Hang on, was that him in Tenet? He looked completely different playing Craven himself. I mean, if you had said Aaron Taylor Johnson of Kickass, I'd have gone, "Oh, I don't see it." But having seen it, how different and buff and bearded he was in Tenet, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. He's Craven." For those who don't know who Craven is, where, where have you been? what you're doing with your <laughs> lives, and sort yourselves out. Uh, the character is a popular enemy of Spider-Man, who always saw Spider-Man as the ultimate hunt. Craven's last hunt story from Spider-Man in the late 80s?
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was drawn by Mike Zek and written by DM Tires, I think it was.
1: Uh, that's considered one of the strongest Spider-Man stories of all times. And what approach the film of Craven will take is as yet unknown. But Taylor Johnson is locked in for multiple films, which may also include the rumoured folding in of all the Spider-Man properties together. Sony Pictures president, Sanford Panich, has stated that the upcoming Spider-Man No Way Home isn't only going to affect the MCU, but it's going to impact all the future Sony-led Spider-films, laying groundwork that should hopefully see more crossover between the MCU and Sony titles. In his words, there is actually a plan. I think now maybe it's getting a little more clear for people where we're headed. And I think when No Way Home comes out, even more will be revealed. The great thing is we have this very excellent relationship with Kevin Feige. There's an incredible sandbox there to play with. We want those MCU movies to be absolutely huge because that's great for us and our Marvel characters. And I think that's the same on their side. But we have a great relationship. There's lots of opportunities, I think, that are going to happen. That hints to me that the working closer and closer with the Marvel Disney brand and Figi at the possibility of completely linking the universes together.
0: It would make sense. And we saw how upset fans were when we didn't think number three was going to have a tie into the MCU because it brings a wealth of story, a wealth of characters to, to both universes. Uh, and it feels joined up in the way... And we also, what happened with the X-Men film, that franchise got further and further away from, from what it started as. And, and let's be honest, it started in a, in a pretty good place. I think people have a tendency to think yeah. of the X-Men franchise as what it became rather than what it, what it started with. X2 is still up there as one of the best superhero movies of all time. So keeping that relationship, keeping that wealth of characters, that cross-promotion. Because to, to us, we're tied into the MCU. But for the casual viewer, you know, it, it's it's like a scorecard. Who's with who and who's with what. If it, if it feels seamless, they'll buy into it uh, and, and not doubt it. And, and now it's been set, that casual viewer wants to keep that sense of continuation. Do you know what I mean? Yep,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's going to be great if they do kind of fold in together and work closely together. Because there's characters such as Kingpin. The, even though he was on the Netflix Marvel shows, there's still ambiguity over who owns the actual rights to that character because he's a Spider-Man villain, but he's also a general MCU villain for Daredevil, etc. So maybe we could see a kingpin getting brought into the MCU that is used in both sides. We could see all these ambiguous characters that they don't know exactly who owns the full rights start to work together. All we need now is for Universal to be a bit more lenient with their rights on the Hulk and allow them to, allow the MCU to do something a bit more than just have them as a support character alongside other people.
0: It's interesting, though, that a lot of the movie creators, not so much Marvel, but uh, with DC, with Sony, are looking at villains as being their lead characters. We've got Craven the Hunter, uh, as, as you said, and we've also uh, got Black Adam in production right now, and we've had Joker. And it seems to be a route that lets us explore the villains as well as just exploring the, the, the lead hero, which is also a segue for you to go into the next story.
1: <laughs> well, we'll just we'll segue into that in a second, because I just want to round up the Sony Spider-Man news by mentioning that there's rumors out there at the moment that Willem Dafoe will be back as Goblin in Far From Home, but those rumours have come from a few notorious let's throw all ideas at a wall and see which one sticks, industry gossipers. So we'll take it with a pinch of salt until something more concrete pours. But to pick up on what you said, (laughs) over on DC and reports are coming out that Todd Phillips has finally struck a deal to co-write the next Joker instalment.
0: Yeah, I am dubious about this one. I think we've got a perfectly formed film that didn't need a sequel. And the way that it ended with the ambiguity of what the audience brought to it, you know, is it the Joker that we know from the comics? Is it a Joker? Is it one of many, many Jokers? Worked fine. You walked away with a film that was uh, about mental health, ultimately, and about chaos. Uh, and and worked it as one film, I think to stretch that out into a sequel, and it may be perfect, it may be incredibly well-written, and Todd Phillips brings his A-game back to this as well. Personally, I'm not interested in seeing a sequel until I start to hear something about it, but I don't see it as a necessity.
1: Yeah, I'm sceptical about it, because uh, I subscribe to the false narrative approach of the first film, that because all the clocks are set at the same time, it's because everything that you see is him telling a false narrative to justify his actions and why he's criminally insane. I'm worried that a sequel will undo that to try to make it out that all of that actually happened, and I don't think it did. Uh, but There's no actual details about whether this Joker film will play that way. Will it be a direct sequel to the previous film, or will they do an alternative Joker? It's also not confirmed whether Phoenix will return for it, so it's all in the... Early writing stages at the moment. There's ideas out there, but there's nothing confirmed. Nothing is known at present, but it's being stirred. So I'm going to keep an eye on it. I've got me I've got me doubts, but I hope to be proven wrong. Yeah. Now, one film that we've spoken about a few times over the past few months is Spielberg's look back at his own life in a film called The Fablemans, which will focus on his own growing adolescence and what inspired him and the things that made him the person that he is. And the casting of the young Spielberg himself has been announced this week. And it's Gabrielle LaBelle, who you might remember from The Predator or American Gigolo. He started to be on a rise as a known star at the moment. And he's going to be playing the teenage version of Spielberg. Paul Dano and Michelle Williams are playing his parents. And Seth Rogen, as we've previously reported, is going to play a new character who's based on Spielberg's favourite uncle. With LaBelle playing the teenage version of Spielberg, there's going to be another younger actor still yet to be announced who will play the younger boy, Spielberg, and filming is planned to start in July, so we should start hearing a bit more buzz and excitement in the coming months on this film. So
0: we were talking about the MGM-Amazon merger, and of course for MGM, their flagship franchise is Bond, and everyone's been speculating, nay worrying. that that Bond will go straight to Amazon, not get a cinema release. But Bond is slightly more complicated than than just MGM because it's owned by Barbara Broccoli and it's a family outing. So they have ultimate control. Uh, And they've spoken up this week that they are committed to continuing to make James Bond films for worldwide theatrical releases and are still committed to the release of the last Daniel Craig film, No Time to Die, which is planned in UK cinemas for the 30th of September. I never thought that they would take Bond to streaming because it's too big a deal.
1: It's a cinematic legacy. I mean, uh, we speculated on this a few weeks ago and all the buzz was saying that, no, that they were still going to stick to cinema. But it's nice to have some confirmation come from within the Bond camp to say, no, 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 streaming is not an option. We are definitely going for the big screen. Bond is a big screen event. Bond is a huge... Huge screen, huge sound, impressive film. And I don't want Daniel Craig's last outing to just be dumped onto a streaming service for a £20 rental price fee. That's not Bond for me. So I am so glad that they are committed to sticking with it. I wouldn't mind it if it goes to streaming a month after it comes out of the big screen, but it needs that initial buzz and hype at cinemas.
0: And it's also that thing that that Bond does so well internationally as well, that there are countries in the world that are are expectant of a Bond film in a way that maybe in the UK we, we, we just see it as being huge, but it travels so well into foreign language areas that you just don't think about.
1: Moving away from Bond and over to J.J. Abrams, who's still planning to bring the computer game Portal to the big screen. Never played it. Oh, it's a cracking game. Eight years ago, he first revealed plans to work with Valve Software on a film based on the game, which the player in the game plays a lone figure called Shell in an underground laboratory for Aperture, who's doing a series of tests and experiments with a portal gun that enables you to teleport from one place to the other. But the crazy AI overseer named GLaDOS is running things and... uh It's definitely gone a bit off the deep end. (laughs) It's a cracking game. It's got a great sense of humor to it. And it's got a great lot. It starts off just literally as room by room, puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. But then it grows into a story and you easily get drawn into it. The gameplay mechanics are fantastic. And it's the kind of sci-fi concept that could play really well on the big screen. Well, this week, IGN got some news on the progress from JJ himself. As he said, we actually do have a script that's being written for the Portal movie now at Warner Brothers. We're really excited about the take and the pitch, so it feels like the thing is finally on the rails. It's got enormous potential for a lot of reasons, one of which is because of the limited narrative of the game. As ingeniously as it's told, the potential of it is so huge. It's going to be super fun. I am signed up completely if this film gets made. I don't care if it ends up being the worst film ever made, but this is going to be my next Mortal Kombat. (laughs) This is another game series that I will embrace anything that gets released on other media for it the portal franchise has spun off into the lego dimensions game series it's spun off into a short-term comic book format it's it's permeated a lot of other medium including a song which was used over the end credits of the game sung by glados the robots itself was actually released and charted quite well in the us <laughs> so it's
0: <laughs> i know nothing of this this is all new all new to me
1: it's absolutely fantastic i I can replay both the Portal games multiple times and still find myself chuckling along to GLaDOS's inane statements as uh, you're trying to escape her wrath. Marvellous stuff. Uh, A couple of trailers landed this week.
0: Yes, they did.
1: And I believe you've seen one of them and I've seen one of them. The one that I've definitely seen, which you've not, is Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that it landed. I just didn't get around to watching it. And uh, I, I don't quite know why I didn't get around to watching it. <laughs> um, just run out of time. But uh, uh, does it look good? Does it deliver? Does it feel Edgar Wright?
1: It feels it feels different than normal Edgar Wright stuff because he's normally like zappy and pizzazz and you know his films have a certain style. This feels a bit more melancholy and somber and uh, mysterious. Anya Taylor-Joy, Thomason McKenzie, Matt Smith, Diana Rigg, and Terence Stamp, the late, great Diana Rigg, uh, star in the film, which is inspired by thr- by thrillers such as Repulsion and Don't Look Now. The story is, a young, aspiring fashionista discovers that her dreams transport her back to the 60s London, where she appears to everyone else as her idol, a dazzling singer. However, time is fractured and elements of the past began to bleed into the present, and the trailer captures that it starts off beautifully with your shots shots set in the 60s and you can hear Anya Taylor-Joy's singing of um, downtown in a rather dreamlike kind of manner and then towards the end of the trailer you start to see the modern day and things not looking quite right it looks supernaturally chilling and i cannot wait yeah
0: now the one that we have seen which i thought again was really chilling was a new M Night Shyamalan movie old which I believe is based on either a graphic novel or um, an independent comic. But boy, did that get under my skin.
1: This film is about a group who vacation in tropical climates and find a dead body on a secluded beach, but then begin to experience unnatural time-related events, and their own bodies start a bizarre aging process that is very off-kilter. Another great cast, Gail Garcia Bernal. Uh, who I remember from all the way back in E2 Mama Tambien. Oh, Vicky Cripps from Phantom Thread. Alex Wolf from Hereditary. Again, Thomasin McKenzie from Jojo Rabbit, who I've just mentioned in the previous trailer. He's really on a roll <laughs> yes, at the moment. Yeah. The marvellous Rufus Sewell, who, um, I'm, as I'm concerned, can do no wrong. Abby Lee from Lovecraft Country. Eliza Scanlon, who I adored last year in Baby Teeth. And Ken Leung from Lost and... Embeth Davids from Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Marvellous names. Uh, Shyamalan's doing this great thing at the moment where he's keeping budgets low, but getting solid B-list names to pack out his cast and delivering some great stories. Because he's it, this is part of his deal that he set up with Universal for two films where he has a limited budget, but full creative control to do what he wants. And so he chose to adapt this material. He wanted to bring this to the screen because he loves, it basically emulates his style of storytelling, a a strange, bizarre, supernatural kind of mystery going on uh, with twists and turns. Uh, I had the pleasure of seeing Split a couple of months before it came out at a private screening for Universal in UK. And M. Night Shyamalan was there to introduce that. And that was the point of his career that he tried the big blockbusters and they weren't working for him. And he was becoming a bit of a joke but he decided to self-finance split at a low budget so he had full control. And he delivered what I think is one of his best films to date. And since then, he's always insisted on keeping the budgets low because it gives him that challenge and it makes him more creative. And he spoke about all this when he was introduced in Split of how, like, he loves the challenge. He loves to be more creative. He's aware that he kind of, he got lost in the Hollywood circuit. So I'm well and truly up for this. His name's been all over everything that's been intriguing over the past few years, including the series on Apple TV.
0: Yes, The Servant, absolutely fantastic series. And again, very much his style, uh, um, that hint of the supernatural told in a very realistic way. Which is which is what I love Unbreakable for. It, it's still my favourite of his films. He definitely, definitely benefits from having control over his stories. He was always the, the the master of the twist. And when you just start to go into a movie just to see the twist, then you're losing everything else around it. You're just going for the for the main course and not enjoying the ambience. But I'm liking what he's doing. This trailer looks super, super creepy. And uh, I can't wait to see it. It's on on my list of I must see when it comes out straight away list. Um, Just a quick bit of last bit of news from me before we move on to you. They mentioned back in January that the Sandman adaptation of Neil Gaiman's classic comic book series was coming to Netflix. Casting had begun. They've added a couple more names. We still don't know who. Kirby Howell Baptiste. Patton Oswalt, who you'll now see play in Modoc, and from Doctor Who, the very gorgeous Jenna Coleman. We don't know who they're playing yet, but it is intriguing, and that's coming to Netflix, I think later this year, if not early next year.
1: I'm always ready for any more Neil Gaiman stuff on the big big or small screen. I love his creative style. And he's been tweeting out from his own accounts about it because he he likes to be involved in helping create the stories for the adaptations. So he's fully behind it. I'm on board. Evil Dead Rise is officially go and it's coming back home to New Line Cinema. And where it started. Yep, back where it all began. Bruce Campbell won't appear, but the new entry will draw from the mythology established by Bruce Campbell's films and not the 2013 reboot. The story will see two sisters, played by Alyssa Sutherland and Lily Sullivan, whose reunion is cut short when the Evil Dead enter the scene, like they do. Uh, The new film is going to be a HBO Max exclusive in the US, and Canal Plus have distribution rights for UK audiences, so expect at least a limited cinema release from Canal Plus before it goes onto a streaming service. Lee Cronin, who directed The Hole in the Ground, has been selected personally by Sam Raimi to direct. And the film is set to be shot in New Zealand, where pretty much every film on the planet is currently starting to shoot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so safe. It's so safe there.
1: They've done it all right. And so, yeah, that's why Australia and New Zealand have become the filming grounds for all of the entertainment media. And let's round off the news with just something which got me excited. This got me personally excited. Yes, we've got Villeneuve's June due later this year, but we can look forward to a reissue of David Lynch's infamously troubled adaptation of it as there's a 4K restoration release on Blu-ray on August the 31st. Now, I've got a soft spot for it. I know the failings of the film. I know it cuts chunks of the book out, but I love the style. I love the cast and I love so many different elements that Lynch brought to it. But what makes this even more interesting is the wealth of extras that this set is going to have. New commentaries, documentaries from the time of the release as well as reflective brand new ones looking back at the production process, the release itself, the post-release. There's 11 deleted scenes going to be contained on the disc and the content is going to span two discs worth. This is a must for any fans of either Dune the Material or Lynch himself, or just people who want to get an understanding of what can go wrong when a film gets creative control taken away from the director themselves. I can't wait. This is definitely going to be a pre-order purchase. And when it comes out, I will talk immensely on the show, probably do a whole sub-special of two hours of me (laughs) just like raving about everything that I've seen in it. June, David Lynch, August 31st blu-ray get it pre-ordered
0: this will give me the perfect opportunity to revisit the film because i've only ever seen it the once and i've only seen it on the big screen i've always avoided it on tv because well i did start to watch it and it felt so minuscule by the movie that i've seen that i, I gave it a miss so this would be my time to go back to it and that as we'd say is the news so enjoying the show did you know you can subscribe to this show you didn't? Well, you should. All you have to do is go to your favourite podcast platform, hit that subscribe button, and the show is yours. Yes to keep. And with that, you keep a little bit of Andy and I's soul.
1: I might need it back at some point. Uh, so yeah. it's, uh, only, it's, only it's only for Lease.
0: <laughs> it's only for Lease. If you want to get in touch with Andy and I, you can do so
1: at... Over on Twitter, at Film file UK. Over on Instagram, Film File UK. Or you can even email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Email us with selections of films that you love. Top 10 films of all time. Films that you think that we should check out that we've maybe not discussed at any point. Anything. We're happy. If it's film related, we'll listen to you.
0: When Andy and I plan our deep dives... You know, we, we, we discuss and we talk about films that we really want to talk about in detail. It surprised us that we hadn't spoken about our deep dive today, which is the 1979 science fiction horror directed by Ridley Scott, written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shushet and Walter Hill, and probably one of the biggest game changers to science fiction horror of all time, of course, Alien. How come I don't hear anybody sing? I'm this thinking... Place. Unless somebody has got a better idea, we'll proceed with Dallas's plan.
1: What? And then don't blame the others. <laughs> no, you're out of your mind. You got a better idea? Yes. I say that we abandon the ship, we get the shuttle, and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up.
0: the shuttle won't take four. Well, then why don't we draw straws? I'm not straws. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. So Alien, an absolute game changer. Launched a franchise. Launched the career of Sigourney Weaver. Changed the way that we view the future. It influenced other films. Of course, there were rip-offs of it. But there's nothing like Alien. Came out in 1979. I sorted the pictures after much, much hype. I was still a kid. My parents took me. I loved it. My parents left so funny enough, if I remember correctly. It's a film that stayed with me. I think I've owned it on every format available. It has a quality to it that makes it timeless. To some extent, the same way that Scott did with Blade Runner. Maybe it's the kind of retro future-looking style that he went for that just sort of tied into what people thought the future was about. It gave us a different view of space travel instead of it being uniforms and being high tech it made it the working guy in space these were basically the same kind of people you find on oil rigs they were your blue collar guys and it gave us a creature that redefined what you could do with a monster it gave you every trick of the book to keep that monster on the ship and not just throw it out into an airlock because it was so well crafted andy what is your memory of seeing Alien for the first time? And what effect did it have on you?
1: I saw this on VHS because I was I was too young to go to the cinema when it came out. And I was straight away taken with it. It's the design of the Alien that captured me at a young age. And like you say, that the, the downbeats, the grounded nature of it, it doesn't look like flashy sci-fi. It's not like Star wars kind of perfect shit. It looks like dingy mining vessels because it is a mining vessel for those who don't know the story of alien and seriously there's been spin-offs there's been comic books novels game franchises how do you not know alien mining vessel the nostromo is returning from deep space and the crew are brought out of hypersleep being awoken early to investigate a signal from a nearby planet on the investigation they find a ship one which appears to have crashed hundreds of years before the pilot is of unknown species origin and the cargo hold is filled with egg-like objects. One of the crew is attacked by something from one of the eggs and soon after another creature bursts from his stomach. Pretty soon the crew find themselves hunters and picked off one by one by an alien creature on board their own ship. And it's basically, it took a, a slasher film kind of approach but transported it to a sci-fi environment including having the, uh, the final girl, the Sigourney Weaver character, as like the person who would last through the whole thing and start off as humble and afraid and not really, not really a warrior, but by the end of it is the one who manages to beat the creature. Spoiler alert. It came out in 79. <laughs> <laughs> I I just remember just being captivated by it and it became a regular rewatch. I wore out VHS tapes of this so many times watching for those key moments and the key moments are marvellous moments. The chest burster moment. I, I was aware of the chest burster moment before I actually saw the film because it was everywhere. I mean, even Spaceballs did a spoof version of it. It was such an intense moment and it works more and more every time I watch it because of how it was made. And Scott did some great things on the making of this by keeping secrets from the cast at various times. And when all the cast were brought in to stand around the table while... Um, hurt was lying on the table ready to start convulsing no one knew what was going to happen as something burst out of his chest and so the reactions that you see from veronica cartwright in particular where she gets splashed with a bit of blood and panics that's a natural reaction that's filmmaking for me in addition veronica cartwright got to have her own ah uh, we've not told anyone about this moment when she slaps a weaver in one scene Sigourney was not expecting that slap to come, and Sigourney Weaver's reaction from that one is a genuine, what reaction? Marvellous filmmaking, but great sci-fi. Sci-fi that is great horror, or horror that is great sci-fi. And this is an argument that we had on Twitter about two months ago. Is it a horror, or is it a sci-fi? And no what. Someone did a poll, and it literally came out 50-50.
0: <laughs> Ridley Scott did so much right with this film, um, in particular uh, using uh, Swiss artist H.R. Geiger uh, alongside such classic science fiction concept artists as Chris Foss and Ron Cobb. But by using Geiger, they took the idea of the alien and it, and, and it developed, to some extent, a life of its own. It was always ambiguous in the in the script what the alien looked like. Uh, I mean, originally, Dan O'Bannon, who created the story, even though there have been subsequent rewrites of the original script, had written the movie Dark Star for John Carpenter, which was a, a student film which got a cinema release. And there was an element in there of an alien chased around the Dark Star. But he knew he wanted to have, to do a scary movie on a spaceship with a, an interesting-looking beast. And there are, if you remember the books that came out around the time, the sort of makings of so many different designs for what the alien was going to look like until Geiger came in. And then when he came in, he made it nightmarish. All the tubing, the fact that the creature has no eyes, the elongated head, the slender frame of it, um, pure Geiger, that sort of almost industrial feel to, to how the creature looks, that sort of bioorganic mechanical look to it, was just a thing of beauty, and it made the alien Absolutely that. It made it uh, just such an appealing-looking monster that we'd never seen before. Uh, To some extent, the plot had been done before. There's a a, a great classic sci-fi movie from the 50s called, uh, I think it's called It From Beyond the Stars, which shares a very, very similar sort of story. And as I said, uh, Dark Star. But it's all the elements that that when Scott came on board that he started to make it into the classic. And you can't take away what, what Scott brought to it. You know, as we said, the the blue collar look, the look of the uh, of the Nostromo, uh, the fact that the crew are men and women, because in the original script, it was never identified uh, gender. Mm -hmm. Everything about it just fit absolutely perfectly. Uh, And and even though the script has been rewritten several, several times, all the key elements are there Uh, and just just small fights, as you said, like how the alien gets onto the ship. Is absolutely nightmarish and unique and original, and created the mythos that carried on into other films, uh, comic books, video games, etc. etc. Hey,
1: this is my favorite of the alien films to date. Whenever people say, What's your favorite one? I always say, The first one, Alien, either the normal version or the director's cut, which restored some scenes but also tightened up other elements and was just as perfect as a result. Scott's handling of tension and claustrophobia is what make this tense tale of a crew versus one perfect killing machine such a gripping watch. The characters are so real, real personalities. They bicker, they joke, they feel like a crew that have been stuck together for years working, whether they like each other or not. And it's not just In the manipulation of the actors that I mentioned before, that Scott excelled when making this. But his handling of the alien itself is a masterclass in audience manipulation. Slow reveals, quick edits, shadowy movements to gradually introduce us to the creature and its menace. We know as much about the creature as the characters do. And it's only at the end of the film that we see the whole beautiful menace of it absolutely perfect film. This is genuinely a five out of five film. If you could go above five with a five five star rating, this would be an above five star rating. If anyone says to me that they don't like the original Alien film, I I stop talking to them at that point in time. I walk away and they can just go and sit on their own island somewhere else because there's something wrong with them.
0: I I totally agree. It is absolutely classic. I've gone through a big Alien resurgence recently having uh, read the original script in comic book form, which was one of my neat things. And then you see how many of the ideas actually held over. Uh, and the flip of that is what Scott and Walter Hill brought to it by making it much more streamlined. The fact that the, the just the look of the movie is, is timeless, and we now think of the future and, and commercial space travel to look like the, the Nostromo and and that world. It's, it's absolutely superb. You cannot just talk about Alien without talking of how the franchise developed, because a few years after that, the film was, a, uh, of course, a massive success uh, for 20th Century Fox. And and on the back of Star Wars, they saw that there was a possibility of a sequel. And a and sequel happened, of course, with James Cameron's Aliens, which the smart thing that Cameron did right from the get-go was to take the film away from the haunted house in space uh, and become... A very very different feel for the movie uh love it or like it it is a classic it goes in a completely different direction and but it opens up the world uh and the schemings of the industry behind alien which to some extent became as much a monster in later films as as the alien itself and your, your your thoughts on aliens first before we talk about the how uh, the series developed
1: as you say cameron took a completely different approach and it makes aliens possibly one of the best sequels ever made to a film because it doesn't feel exactly like it's repeating the first film it feels like it's growing out it's growing into a different area ripley is found drifting in space decades later ends up being sent back to lv426 with a squad of marines when a colony established to terraform the moon there goes silent thus The film becomes a military might film. Action, an abundance of alien menace. We also get introduced once again to a great bunch of characters that have become iconic and legendary in their own way. Even those with only one or two lines still stick in your memory. You've got Vasquez, you've got Drake, Burke, Epone, the sharp lines of dialogue and biting insults thrown about between the squad. Again, like with the workers who were stuck together for years, you genuinely feel the camaraderie and the banter of a squad that have worked in perfect synchronicity for many, many missions and always held out. And now they're up against a menace that they have no idea about. And that's when they start to fracture. Hudson, played by the late, great Bill Paxton, stands out immensely, as does Hicks, played by Michael Bean, who both are polar opposites. One is the hothead private, the other the quiet and reserved officer material. And they form the heart of the squad, that Ripley kind of links herself closest to. Lance Henriksen is along as an android called Bishop, which causes uh, a bit of tensions against Ripley, who has distrust after the first film. And there's one survivor of the colony, the young girl Newt, played by Carrie Henn, that normally when you cast a kid in a film you guarantee that it's going to not work and it, it suffers. But she is marvellous and she becomes the fighting spirit of the film. She's the one who's not afraid while the soldiers are starting to panic. The film is packed with action sequences, characters, effects, and so much more. But it never feels bloated. The pacing has a slow build. It draws us into the tension and then it flips us back into the action. And at the same time, the biology of the Xeno is explored more and the society of the Xeno. We discover where the eggs come from, we discover the hive-like nature of the species, and we discover the Alien Queen.
0: It, it really does stand up. I mean, before we talk about, about where, where the franchise left, Alien is, is, such a, is such a cerebral film, and that's what lacked in further sequels. The characters were, were engaging and, as you said, real. And while there've been some some good takes, clearly, Aliens is is a, is a great movie. What always lacked for me, and even in Prometheus, uh, strangely enough, that that was that that thinking behind it, that intelligence behind that film, that that made it unique. David Fincher was brought on board to direct Alien Three. That had gone through many many rewrites. Again, Dark Horse published a William Gibson version, which was a, a, an intriguing take.
1: Gibson's version, he described himself as space commies hijack alien eggs. Big problems in Mole world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, and it's not a bad take. And there were there were many, many uh, different different variations of where Alien 3 could go. And the idea was always to bring in a new up-and-coming director. Remember that Ridley Scott had only really made one film before Alien. and And Cameron had only really made Terminator at this point. Uh, and David Fincher was was on the rise as a, as a filmmaker, and he'd been uh, responsible for some very very cool looking music videos. But and and I've got a I've got some love for Alien Three. It was tampered with in the script stage. It was tampered with, on set. It was tampered with by Fox and, and the producers, and and feels a very very disappointing third entry into the films. Even though it's got some some interesting takes on it, it is all over the place. There is a work print available uh, on one of the box sets on the on the Blu-ray box sets, which gives you a look at where the film could have gone, but not enough to save it to call it a classic. And then we, of course, we had uh, Jean-Pierre Junot's Alien Resurrection, which really did put uh, the nail in the coffin. Again, not a bad script, interestingly written by Joss Whedon, but it was it was the wrong director for that particular film and it felt as though at that stage that the franchise had gone far too far
1: both alien 3 and alien resurrection there's elements of both that i really love i love the fact that alien 3 stripped back to a one alien versus a colony approach again it it felt more in tone with the first film there was no gung-ho guns and it had the claustrophobia aspect of it the whole like Prisoners who've found religion and formed a monk-like community gave it an interesting approach, and there's a great cast in there, but it never feels like it leans enough into all the themes that it wants to try to set up. And then Alien Resurrection, you know, I've, I've got a load of love for Junet's previous work, Delicatessen City of Lost Children, and he brings the visual style of those films to the Alien franchise, but the story itself... It doesn't quite know what it's doing. It's basically Sigourney Weaver's playing Ripley again, but she's now being cloned from contaminated blood, which has mixed her DNA with that of the alien queen. So she's got superhuman abilities. It's on one ship on its way to earth with Xeno experiments on board. And it's a race against time. And all the potential is there for it to be a gripping film. But it just doesn't work. There's moments that stand out. The, The biggest standout moment is we get to see aliens swimming underwater, which was completely unseen up until that point we didn't realize that they could breathe underwater and they would be the perfect hunting machine on all land sea or whatever but the film's a muddied mess june's quirky style doesn't sit well with the story but as bad as three and four would be and how it's poorly received it went worse (laughs) because we got the alien versus predator series
0: yeah and we mentioned these the other week when we talked about predator and i have as i said at the time a little bit of love for the very first one. After that, it went completely off the rails. Didn't find the audiences, thankfully, and we never got a third one. Um, What we did get was Ridley Scott returning with Prometheus, which was a kind of a a, a sideways alien sequel, which explored kind of the backstory of, of alien. Uh, It always felt like the missing Star Trek episode to me, rather than alien (laughs) film. It had a, something to the mythology that suddenly the good work, and I was ultimately disappointed with Prometheus, but the good work that he did do went right out of the window with uh, Alien Covenant, which is disappointing on every level. Disappointing as a Ridley Scott film, because it doesn't even look like a Ridley Scott film. It felt like an attempt to shoehorn Alien back into something which could have been much more interesting uh, and is as an, an absolute mess of a film and really did put an eventual nail in the alien coffin.
1: Yeah, Prometheus and Covenant are prime examples of that past decade of Fox interfering, Fox executives clearly interfering too much with big budget projects. Prometheus harbors some grand ideas. It explores themes of the series, but it wasn't intended to be a direct alien film. But Fox being Fox wanted it to be an alien film. Scott obliged and gave us a film that is, it's strong in general concept, but suffers from actually being an alien film. There's themes of creation and destruction from the engineers, manipulations of life, which were interesting enough without forcing a third act alien menace into the mix. And then on the next film, like you say, we all hoped it would pick up on the themes that it established with David and Elizabeth's quest for truth. It simply skipped the interesting parts. We only got offered it in a brief flashback story and a few online viral videos as to what actually happened between the two films. Instead, it delivered an underwhelming alien film with a heap of continuity issues for the whole series. Uh, Scott has said he wants to go back and return to the story again. And on the most recent reports, there is something in a kind of development, although it's uncertain whether it's going to pick up from Prometheus and Covenant or be something completely new. And last year, as we've already spoken a few times, Noah Hawley was announced as developing a TV series for Disney Plus with Ridley Scott on board to help him come up with the concept and the ideas and this series will be set for the first time on earth the very first time that the franchise has come home and put the alien menace amongst mankind
0: that looks very intriguing also also as a missed opportunity there was the uh, new alien film that was going to be developed by Neil Blomkamp that looked as though it was taking us back to Ripley uh, and basically skipping Alien 3 as a sequel but that got turned over for alien covenant unfortunately and all that exists is some very intriguing production art but you can't keep a good alien down as you said there's a proposed tv series and sometime in the future there will be another alien film will it be any good only time will tell but you cannot go wrong by returning to the classic ridley scott alien so we've had the chance to get back into the cinema and as andy said It was a joyous experience. And for our first cinema review together of 2021, Andy and I are going to bring you our review of A Quiet Place Part 2. Let's go. Most people had finally given up hope. You won't survive. We have to try. So it's day 474 of the alien attack, literally the day after the events of A Quiet Place and the Abbott family leave their destroyed farmhouse and venture out into the outside world beyond the sandpath that they created. But it's not just the creatures who stalk by sound they have to evade. It's the entire world out there and what horrors that brings. And as I said, it literally takes place, this sequel, the day after the events of the first film, that really does make it feel as though you are watching, not a sequel per se, but the next chapter. There is an almost book-like quality to this film because the film opens with a very intriguing look at day one of what happened and how the world turned out to be in the state that it is. I absolutely loved it. Jumped out of my seat three (laughs) or four times with a one cry of, oh, Jesus, and, uh, and I think I jumped so much that I made Andy jump while we watched it in the cinema. Um, there's so much tension. There's, it's beautifully directed, beautifully paced. Uh, it's not as good as, as A Quiet Place, um, which I'll talk about in a, in a little while as to why I think it, it doesn't quite succeed on that level. But uh, I, a, a rollicking good hour and a half and in such a way that I cannot wait now to see part three because they're, the film ends, no spoilers, in the perfect place to see the day after the events of this film.
1: Yeah, I mean, you say that the film opens with day one and that short sequence for the day one, I mean, it gives us a chance to see John Krasinski on the big screen again as Lee and absolutely marvellous. But you get to see more of his bonding with Regan, his deaf daughter. In the first film, they kind of become distant because of circumstances but you get to understand how close they were. It also allows us to be briefly introduced to friends and neighbours of the family. Very briefly, but enough to get a feeling for their characters, which is important for the midpoint of the film. The opening scene is set at a baseball game where they're watching the kids playing baseball, so you get to see the interactions between some of the parents. Uh, And then the stunning sequences of the initial attack from the creatures and the family trying to find sanctuary. You said about your jumping. Oh, man. Yes, you jumped. And (laughs) the film effectively uses jump scare moments that definitely work. I was so aware of every time that you jerked in your seat at a jump moment. I I was chuckling away to myself. Uh, But you remember last week when I spoke about Spiral and I was droning about overuse of jump scares and it doesn't scare and it's not a a good technique. It is when it's used naturally. Spiral suffers by throwing fake jump scares in. Just a loud noise for no reason. A firework exploding for no reason. This works because everyone is quiet. The sound mix of the film, just like the first film, drops all noise to a whisper level, making you aware of your own breathing. When characters are moving around, they're moving carefully not to make any sound because, hey, the creatures will pick it up. And occasionally it shifts to Regan's point of view with her complete deafness making you realise that Regan herself can't hear the clicking of the creatures or even what noise she's making and so must live in constant fear, something that would have been hit even harder after seeing her father killed in the previous film when he sacrificed himself for her. And so with us being thrust into such silence, even just a minor noise makes you jump, but it's a natural noise of jumping because you're jumping because the characters themselves are jumping. You're not jumping just as an audience because a filmmaker has tricked you. You are jumping because you are engrossed in what is going on on screen.
0: And these jump scares are earned, unlike a lot of movies, because it, 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 they're earned because of the conceit of, of the movie. And they are earned because of the ingenuity of how they are delivered. You know when a character cries out in pain and you empathise when they carry it, they cry out in pain but you know the threat that comes with that and the terror that comes with that. And so every scare is absolutely earned. The cast are uniformly great. We now have the addition of Killian Murphy into it, who plays, again, a a very well-developed character who, Mm -hmm. in another kind of film, could have just been that baseball cap-bearded survivalist. But again, because of Krasinski, who's now lead scriptwriter on this, he's given depth and, and given a quality to, and and it is the characterization that works in this, that elevates it from just being a traditional monster movie. The, the cast are uniformly great. Uh, Emily Blunt is, is damaged and empathetic and sad, and yet uh, uh, a mother who wants to protect at all costs her children. Um, the only time this film felt a little forced for me, in a way that the first one was just such a beautiful set of sequences put together, is in the kind of the middle of the film where all the characters get split up. Uh, and while it's beautifully directed because we literally intercut between their actions, it just takes away what worked in the first first film, which is is following that family and, and that family's interaction. Um, and it's only a small quibble. Uh, as I said, it's not quite as good as, as, as the first film. But when you say it's not quite as good, that's not to damn it with with false praise. It still is a great film, a great continuation of, a, of the Quiet Place story, uh, and a, and such a clever conceit. And while ever it's in the hands of John Krasinski and his wife Emily Blunt, then I'm in. I'm in for the part three of this brand new horror franchise.
1: Same here. I mean, by the end of this film, I am hopeful for a third film because. The world setting is expanded out a bit. A few questions as to what's going on elsewhere are answered, but also more questions are raised. And I've now got questions as how widespread is this invasion that's going on? Are other countries attacked by it? We don't know at this point in time. I want more Quiet Place as long as they can keep this consistency of the style and the approach. That's what we need from it. This is a great modern day franchise horror film. Series and the two films serve so beautifully back to back as one story. Well worth checking out. Quiet Place 2 is showing at all cinemas this week. So Andy has also
0: seen a film that I've not seen, which is not unusual. He saw it on Disney Plus, but you can see it in the cinemas. Andy tell us about Cruella. From the very beginning, we were like a family. But as good as things were, we had an empire to destroy. didn't know you knew how to drive. They don't. It's a world of
1: opportunity. Trust me. We're a team. Defamation. Vandalism. We're just getting started. Disney's Cruella. So Cruella is Disney's latest attempt to carve an origin story for one of its villains. Maleficent did so well and spawned its own sequel that they've decided to tap into that whole avenue again. It throws us back to the 60s and 70s to show a young Estella, the girl who would grow up to be Cruella, in her rise to prominence in the world of fashion. She befriends a pair of thieves early in her childhood and they build a life for themselves on the London streets until an opportunity arises when the fashion legend Baroness Von Hellman recruits Estella into her designer team. First things first, one of the issues that I have with this film is that it's serving as an origin tale for someone who we know from the source material wanted to skin Dalmatian puppies to make clothes. Now, the film decides to recreate the legend to make Estella more sympathetic, and according to many commenters online, this isn't supposed to be that same character, but a totally new take. But, and here's the rub, if that's the case, why does the film so decidedly make sure to include every bit of lore and reference, character and beat that feed into the Cr- Cruella Deville vibe? And why, indeed, does the film literally end having set Cruella up as the character we know? Yes, this film suffers from soloitis. That awful prequel thing where they feel the need to shoehorn everything in to link it all up, including where she got the Cruella name from in throwaway supposedly witty lines. Lol. Oh, also DeVille. Ha ha. Oh, well done. You've explained names. (laughs) However, any attempt to mention that online at present sadly sees a wave of hate thrown at you by a crowd of fanatics that would put the Snyder cult to shame. This is It's gone bizarre online that if you don't say that this is a perfect film, everyone has a go at you. So people are treading carefully about how they're talking about this. Now, back to the film. The cast are magnificent. Emma Stone is always a pleasure on screen, and here she absolutely relishes her turn in a split role. The mild and timid Estella, and the mysterious new fashion icon, Cruella. And of course, Emma Thompson is casually chewing the scenery every moment she's in shot. There's solid support coming from Mark Strong, Emily Beecham, Joel Fry, and Paul Walter Hauser, who is growing more and more every film that he's in, as well as a variety of other faces and names that you'll recognise. The cast are clearly enjoying themselves, and the film has... A sometimes zany fun element to it as it mocks and satirises the fashion world with gleeful aplomb. The film certainly has a style. It has a look that captures the buzz and happening of the 70s era and throws in a packed soundtrack of pop tunes from the area. And here's another problem. Sometimes this style gets a bit too much. Craig Gillespie, who previously gave us films such as I, Tonya and the Fright Night remake, goes for a constantly in motion approach and sweeping cameras, panning, zooming, spinning are the order of the day. And it's fair to mention that it never blurs the moment and indeed everything looks sharp, but it grows tiring very early on when coupled with the constant needle drops of a soundtrack album, which must be larger than now that's what I call 100 hits of the 70s. It just feels too much like an over-inflated music video. Maybe it's trying to emulate the sweeping scans of the catwalk and the pop vibe of it. Who knows? But it was just irritating, whilst at the same time presenting some marvellous individual moments. The music cho- choices also become a bit too much at times, especially when tracks that have the word dog in them <laughs> are thrown in there. diamond dogs for a start. Um, want to be your dog for another one. There's a handful of them scattered through. If you thought Army of the Dead use of zombie was ridiculous, you ain't heard anything yet. Overall, it's a film that felt longer than it was, even though I was strangely engaged with the overall film. It's a curiously misguided, yet strangely provocative, origin or not origin tale that muddies the story, missteps frequently, and yet does it all so wonderfully. Genuinely, I've got a mixed opinion on this one. I've currently scored it as two out of five on Letterboxd, but I do feel that if I return to it a year down the line with fresh eyes and none of the current hysteria surrounding it, I might appreciate it more, padding it up to maybe a three possibly. It's not a great film, but it's a great-looking, great-acted, just uneven film, story-wise, that wanted to be a prequel for a character but clearly realised you can't make that character empathetic and so completely change the character to create a different story. Why they didn't just make this film as a completely different character anyway, I don't know. Oh yeah, I do know it's because you need the name Cruella in order to sell it because no one's going to jump onto a new property these days because people want that familiarity. Underwhelming whilst being sumptuous is how I'll sum that one up
0: what else is happening across all the streaming platforms and anything we should be watching out for on the big screen this week.
1: So coming this week to cinemas, we've spoken about it. A Quiet Place 2 opens properly this week, including on Sunday evening, some cinemas in the UK will be streaming a live Q&A showing with creator and director John Krasinski doing a 30-minute interview before the film. If you're a fan of Quiet Place 1 or 2, well worth Pick up tickets for that screening. If you've not seen Quiet Place 2 anyway, grab your tickets. They're selling fast. Uh, There's a film called Land, which Robin Wright stars and directs in a film about a local hunter who brings a grieving lawyer back from the brink of death after she retreats to the harsh wilderness of the Rockies. And Dream Horse, which is an uplifting tale about the true story of Dream Alliance, an unlikely racehorse bred by a small-town bartender, Jan Vokes. With very little money and no experience, Jan convinces her neighbours to chip in their meagre earnings to help raise Dream and compete with the racing elites. Over on streaming, Sweet Tooth Season 1 lands, which is based on the DC Comics and follows Gus, a deer-stroke human hybrid, who leaves the sanctuary of the forest to explore the world, devastated by a cataclysmic event. An extreme, a fast-paced action thriller that sees a retired hitman take revenge on his lethal stepbrother. Over on Amazon. Darren Aronofsky's Blackley comic Nightmare, Mother, which stars Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence. A film that divided people's opinions, but is a film well worth exploring. And already landed on Amazon today is Saint Maud*, one of my top picks of last year. Morphid Clark is mesmerising in this chilling film from first-time director Rose Glass. Well worth checking out.
0: And that's it for another Film File. But before we go, at this time, we always do this. We talk about our neat things, things that we've watched, seen, played, heard, read, whatever our neat thing over the last week is, we're going to tell you. Andy, what's your neat
1: thing? So my neat thing is, I'm, I'm behind the times on this one, but are finally catching up, Love, Death and Robots on Netflix. I finally got round to watching season one, and I've now just started season two. For those who don't know what it is, it's a series of short, 10 to 15 minute animated sci-fi stories that are a mixed bag, but generally enjoyable overall. There's some absolute highlights. Alternate histories was a hysterical look at different ways that Adolf Hitler could die and how that would affect the timelines. Beyond the Aquila Rift was a a, a dark coming out of hyperspace and hypersleep sci-fi suspense story, and the Secret War captured my attention. Blind Spot was nice looking but lackluster. Uh, but around eight minutes runtime, it didn't bother me as I swiftly moved on to another episode. I've just started season two and found immediate fun to be had with Automated Customer Care, the story of a woman stuck in a house with her killer dustbot. They are great little shorts. If you like sci fi or you like animation, worth checking out. The animation is glorious and different designs throughout the whole thing. The stories hit and miss, but generally, an average to great experience.
0: Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. I think I did them in sort of one sitting a bit like you. Uh, there were some absolute highlights. The werewolves in Iraq one I thought was fantastic. Uh, I loved the traditional animation one, which is set on the farming planet and is very much a, a kind of an alien type deal to it. The second season was a bit more hit and miss. Um, there was the Blade Runner-esque one with uh, the people who lived forever. I thought the animation was just superb. Almost uh, at first, I didn't think it was animated. It was it was that beautiful. Um, the second season didn't hit as well as the as the first one. Only a couple of highlights, but it is well worth watching. It's clever sci-fi and and just beautifully, beautifully made. My neat thing for this week is in anticipation of a series landing on netflix this week which is sweet tooth which if you've seen the trailer it looks absolutely phenomenal but if you didn't know that sweet tooth is based on a comic book series uh, put out by Vertigo, which was uh, sadly gone, uh, owned by DC Comics, in which they did uh, creator-owned comics that were adult in nature. Sandman was a part of that. Hellblazer was another one. And Sweet Tooth, by Canadian artist and writer Jeff Lemire, who uh, was uh, uh, an absolute huge success for them. And it, it was inevitable, really, that it had the potential to become uh, uh, either a movie or a TV series. So it's kind of... Uh, as the blurb goes, Mad Max meets Bambi it takes place in, in a mostly rural, apocalyptical setting where some creatures and humans have become hybrids. Um, I'm not going to give too much away because I, I think the series is going to cover, from what I can tell, what the what the original comic book series did. But well worth checking out. Go out and find it if you get chance to read it before you see Sweet Tooth on Netflix this week. And if it's as good as the, the book is... And then I cannot wait to see the series. And that's it for The Film File this week. As I said, we'll be back next week with another show. Andy, uh, I'll see you in the cinema, hopefully, this week.
1: Yes, uh, I'm sure we'll pick something to uh, go and watch together. Maybe maybe Conjuring 3, I don't know. Ooh, yeah,
0: that's got me excited. And um, in the meantime, stay safe, don't make any noise.